Thank you, Jesus, for that gospel truth that even when we stray, even when we wander, that your love, it never fails. It never lets go. Father, you never hold it back from us. Father, this message is challenging today. So we need your Holy Spirit here. We need your Spirit present, your Spirit to fall and fill this place. Father, would you teach us today? Would you open our ears, open our eyes? May we not just be hearers of this word, would be believers and receivers of it. See the freedom that you offer in it. And would we be doers of your word? In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Worship team, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I told Robin in between services that my mark of a good worship team is if they can simply drown out my voice. But boy, was there so much more than that today. So thank you for leading us in this way. Good morning, Trinity. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. Pastor Kirk, thank you, JJ. Pastor Kirk and Shelby and their family are in Tennessee right now enjoying some family time and some rest and relaxation. We pray that's exactly what is happening. Well, today we cross the finish line of the four-week sermon series that we started at the beginning of this year called Come Find Rest. And that invitation comes right out of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, which we're going to dig into again in this sermon. And we've looked at Jesus' invitation to us all to come to him and in him find rest for our souls. We've looked at it so far in three different ways. First, rest from the burden of shame. That was week number one. Second, rest from the burden of trying to control everything. That was week number two. And last week we studied finding rest from the lies and the darkness and the loneliness of this world. And today we are going to look at what I am calling rest from the burden of unfulfillment. That never-ending, always-present sense of wanting more, of never being satisfied, perpetual emptiness. The burden of unfulfillment. Now my introduction is unusually long before we get to our text for today, but bear with me. This text today, this message is very personal for me, and I think it'll help sort of set the table for what Jesus warns us against when we get to Luke chapter 12. It was May 2006. Ashley and I were living in a small apartment on Ten Apple Road, right off of 128 North in Beverly. We were married, we had our first child, Ava Bell, and that month I graduated from grad school at Boston University, and we were gearing up to move our family down to Virginia Beach, so there's sort of this confluence of life events all at one time. And Ashley's parents were in town visiting us from Virginia Beach before our big move. And it was at this time that my father-in-law asked me what my plans were for work when I got down to Virginia Beach. Now, all of my background, all of my experience, all of my education is in the area of finance. And I knew that he owned 
a very successful real estate development company. And so I, my plan was to ask him, are you comfortable introducing me to some of your banking relationships, some of your banking partners? That's when he told me that his company was rapidly expanding and he really needed someone to help with regional asset acquisitions. And I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me. Acquisitions was my exact concentration in grad school. I get to work for and with my wealthy father-in-law. Like, how mad can he get at me? I married his daughter. <laughs> and the starting salary was twice what I was currently making. I couldn't have said yes fast enough. I'm like standing in our little apartment filled with nothing, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm rich! Like, this is everything I ever, this is like the start of every cheesy Disney movie. This is everything I've ever dreamed of. And then we moved down there, and I was immersed in this wealthy lifestyle. Now, I didn't come from wealth, so this is all very new to me. My in-laws had a massive and beautiful home right on the water of Chesapeake Bay. I was working on the sermon this week and I left to get up and do something and Ava typed the following sentence. Ava was the queen of that mansion. <laughs> but it's true. First grandbaby, you better believe it. In the driveway, a row of brand new black Lincoln Navigators to choose from and a convertible Jaguar. Out back, the in-ground pool with the long, perfectly manicured lawn that rolls down to a, a dock with a jet ski, an 18-foot Boston whaler, and a 30-foot Wellcraft. At the marina down the street, a 50-foot Sea Ray with a captain. When the beach scene got old or cold, we would fly to their brand new custom home on a private golf course just outside of Aspen, Colorado. Now, I don't want you to get an incomplete picture. My father-in-law, who was the head of the family, was extremely generous. Every single Christmas, he would spend tens of thousands of dollars and buy, put on a whole Christmas event, Santa, toys, all of it, for an underprivileged school in Virginia Beach, for young kids in Virginia Beach. He and I also started a homeless ministry in Virginia Beach, uh, incorporated it, all sorts of other stuff that not just fed and provided necessities for the homeless, but gave them job training and opportunities to, to not just sort of have their physical needs met, but show them that there was a better way and try to give them the opportunities to do that. Now, our homes and cars and boats and possessions, bad things. We can have a conversation about excess, and we will. But in and of themselves, they are not bad. They are not good. They're just neutral. They become exceedingly dangerous, however, when they form your identity, when they become the source of your fulfillment, when they possess you. So even though I was making twice as much as I was before, guess who suddenly felt very poor? But see, I knew my father-in-law was grooming me to take over the family business. I was his succession plan. One day it would all be mine, and then I would be rich. And then 
I would be secure and successful. And then I would have ultimate fulfillment. Then I will have made it. Well, it was early May 2008. My father-in-law and a few others were up in Washington, D.C., meeting with one of the directors of GE Capital and his whole team. And we were discussing a $750 million buyout of our family company. Just want to say that number one more time. We were discussing a $750 million buyout of our family business. And the last person into the meeting was a gentleman by the name of Mark. He was the director. He was coming from one meeting to ours. And he sat down at the table and he said two words that I can still hear today. It's over. The financial party, the easy money, the deals, our deal, the economy, it's over. And two weeks later, the global economy seized and then collapsed. And we lost everything. Everything. All the houses, all the money, all the cars, all the boats, thousands of apartment units, thousands of acres of development, gone. But more than that, we lost ourselves. Because if who you are is determined by what you have, then who are you when everything you have is gone? I had bought the lie that so many have, that if I could just get that next thing, that stuff, reach that level, I would be fulfilled. I would be satisfied. My life would have meaning and value and security. And if we think we only try to achieve fulfillment through material possessions, we are wrong. We do this with food, television, relationships. We seek fulfillment online with social media. How many likes and followers do you have? We turn to parties and pills and bottles. We accumulate power and knowledge and popularity. And if you think that sentiment stops at that door, do a search for consumeristic Christianity and you will come up with 500,000 hits. But perhaps most troubling, and I will choose my words carefully here out of sensitivity, but the point will carry. Data from the top 100 out of 42,000 most visited adult websites reports the following. 3.3 billion unique views for 20 billion total minutes which is 330 million hours, which is 14 million days, or 38,000 years of content viewed in April 2020. 38, one month after the lockdown, 38,000 years What was once the deepest physical, emotional, and spiritual connection reserved for the relational intimacy within a lifelong covenant of marriage has been reduced to a six-minute download. In our pursuit of fulfillment, we have literally started to consume one another. 
We are all leading lives and making decisions that we hope and believe will bring us fulfillment and contentment and safety and security. Because every single one of us has within us a deep desire for fulfillment. That is not the problem. The problem is not that we desire fulfillment. The problem is where we try to find it. And that is exactly what Jesus challenges us on in Luke chapter 12. So turn with me to page 845 in the Pewback Bible in front of you. If you do not have one, that is our gift to you. Page 845, this is Luke chapter 12. We're going to read verses 13 through 21, which will be very familiar to many of you. Again, that's 845, Luke chapter 12. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Now let me set the scene here with a little bit of context. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus is teaching to thousands upon thousands So many people that Luke records, they're literally trampling on one another. And a voice from the crowd emerges. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Now, I don't know if it's still this way in that that culture, but 2,000 years ago, when a father passed away, if he had more than one son, the oldest son would get a double portion of the inheritance. This is part of the Mosaic Law. It's right out of Deuteronomy 21. The older son would get twice as much as the younger. So we can safely assume that this is the younger brother in the crowd demanding from Jesus. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance evenly. And right off the bat, this guy has two problems. And the first one comes in hot. This man is not seeking to gain insight or wisdom from Jesus. He wants to use Jesus' authority for his own greedy gain. This is the pouty lip, big big eyelashes. Daddy, can I have some ice cream? No, honey, it's 9 o'clock at night. We actually need to get ready for bed. Walks into the other room. Mommy, can I have some ice cream? Or, if you will, Jesus... If you really love me, you'll make this $750 million deal close. 
Do you want to know really quickly if you have a consumeristic relationship with Jesus? Ask and answer this question. If you died and got to heaven and it was everything you thought it would be, big fluffy clouds, you're the healthiest version of you, you're reunited with family and friends, the choicest food, the nicest weather, castle on a hill, whatever, all of it. But Jesus isn't there. Would you want to stay? The posture of our hearts matters because it reflects the spiritual reality of our soul. And that is one of the things I've found so encouraging about so many of you in this church. I've learned about the power of prayer and the posture of our hearts as we go to God. Let me clarify something. No prayer rings louder in heaven than the desperate pleas of a concerned parent, a wounded soul, or a struggling saint. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not this man in the crowd. Jesus isn't an end for this man. Jesus is a means to an end for this man. And that leads to problem number two, that Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men. And Jesus is such a master. He responds to this man with a question. But Jesus' questions are never for him to gain information, as if he doesn't already know the answer. Jesus' questions are to gently expose our misplaced motives in the posture of our hearts. But it doesn't matter how the guy answers the question, right? If the guy says, listen, Jesus, I'm making you an authority, or my brother sent me to have you figure this out, or you're clearly the son of God, and so you've got authority from God. However the guy answers the question, Jesus' next question is even worse. Because it's, you going to listen to me then? You're going to listen to me even if I don't rule in your favor? Or you just want to use my authority to ordain your greed? I don't know about you, but I'm kind of happy Jesus doesn't wait for an answer here. And he turns to the huge crowd and he gives a warning followed by a story. First, the warning, verse 15, Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And what's so interesting to me about this warning is I can only think of one other time in Scripture where Jesus gives a warning like this. And it's when he's asked by his disciples about the end times. And he tells them to be on their guard, to watch out, because many will be coming and they will try to deceive about Jesus' return. But watch out and always be prepared and always be ready because no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return. So, based on that, by show of hands, who in here knows the day or hour when Jesus will return? I'm happy to see no one thinks they're God. <laughs> I, would have, I would have had it gone in a different direction with this. By show of hands, who in here is greedy? Okay. 
I got two hands down there. Maybe a third of you? Maybe? Could it be that Jesus is telling us to watch out and protect against greed because, kind of like Jesus' return, it's guaranteed but impossible to know? And the word that Jesus has used here that we translate greed, I think, is it's super helpful. He uses the Greek word pleonexia, which translates to insatiable appetite. Now, I remember, and I remember because it wasn't that long ago, I was 15 years old. (laughs) Just going to leave that there. I was 15 years old. I was on the wrestling team at St. John's Prep. A growing teenage boy. An insatiable appetite is one of the hallmarks of a teenage boy. Can I get an amen from some parent of a teenage boy with a grocery bill? I could eat anything I wanted and never be full. Like dinner time, eat the whole thing. Seven o'clock, starving. And while that kind of hunger as a teenager was kind of fun, that kind of hunger spiritually is deadly. I think of myself praying for that deal to close, totally blind to the greed, totally blind to the insatiable appetite. If I just get this deal closed, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be satisfied. And what Jesus says to this man, what he says to me, and what he says to all of us, literally translated as this, Be aware and be on guard against this insatiable appetite. For not even when one has a superabundance does the state of his soul consist of his possessions. And he illustrates that story, that point. He illustrates that point with a parable. Now just remember, a parable is just an earthly story that depicts heavenly realities. Verse 16, Jesus tells this story. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, He what? Jesus doesn't just know what we say. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus says, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, this man is called by commentators as the blind guy with five eyes. What shall I do? I have no place. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down. I'll store. I'll say. I'll do. I, I, I. And this man is already rich. The ground of a rich man. He starts rich. And his land produces an abundant harvest. A massive crop. This is that word, super abundant. And he has so much of it that his barns 
are bursting at the seams and he's got so much left over. And he thinks that this super abundance will now provide ultimate fulfillment. You have plenty of grain for many years, he says. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, it's almost unbelievable the way that Jesus tells this story, and you've got to see it. In the original language, this story explodes off the page. In verse 19, the man says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of grain stored for a great many years. Rest, eat, drink. And then he uses this Greek word, Euphrano. And the root of this word is the Greek word phron, which comes from it the word diaphragm. And when used in the positive as it is here, symbolizes a deep spiritual fulfillment and satisfaction. The EU in front of it magnifies the word, it like blows it up. And so people hearing Jesus tell this story would literally have a mental picture in their head of this rich man saying to himself, rest, eat, drink, and... So what this man says is that because of all this grain, he is now set for life and now his soul has ultimate fulfillment. And in verse 20, God says to this man, to me, and to all of us, ah, throne. The word is not you fool. There's a Greek word for fool. It's moros, where we get moron from. God says the exact opposite of what this man says. If the EU in front of it expands the word, the A negates it. What you thought would allow your soul to breathe deeply will strangle it. We have been conditioned to believe that full barns equal a full life. We put unfair expectations and unliftable weight on money and relationships, and food, and popularity, and knowledge, and all of these things to provide for us the fulfillment we desire. And as they fail to do so, they hang the burden of unfulfillment right back around our neck. There are so many echoes from the past of people who have climbed the mountain of success, and fame, and wealth, only to find that it only overpromised and underdelivered. Winston Churchill, one of the most powerful people in the world at one time, said this, Wealth, taste, and leisure can bring many things, but they cannot bring fulfillment. John Templeton, billionaire investor, said, Happiness comes from spiritual wealth, not material wealth. From giving, not getting. And of course, the wealthiest man that ever lived, King Solomon, wrote these words, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, 
And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And there are countless others. But the loudest echo of them all for me is that that comes from my father-in-law. And I've told you that on the heels of losing everything, my father-in-law took his life. But I've never told you why. All of the burdens we've discussed in the past four weeks came crashing onto the shoreline of his heart. Failure leading to the burden of shame. The crushing reality of the total lack of control. Under the weight of the losses, the crushing burden of darkness and loneliness. When all that you've put your faith and trust and fulfillment in goes up in flames. This is Jesus' warning. And I know it because I lived it. The more hope you put into that which fails to fulfill the more crushing the despair that comes in its wake. Brothers and sisters, God has a plan and purpose for every single one of us, and it does not include an endless game of trivial pursuit. We cannot and we must not go to the stuff and the things of this world that can never and will never fill the God-shaped hole in our heart. The invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for a lifetime of settling for unfulfillment until we get to heaven because heaven is not a place. It's the presence of a person. The greatest blessing of all is not the forgiveness of sin. Although if that was the only blessing, it would be enough. It is not something taken from us, but someone given for us. The greatest blessing of the gospel is the person and work and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus who, although he was rich, became poor, did not fill himself up but emptied himself. Although he's the master of the universe, he became a servant. The stuff and the things that we pursue only steal our life and kill our soul. But it was Jesus who pursued our life by giving his on the cross. It is to him that we must turn. It is to him that we put our faith and trust and find ultimate fulfillment in. Come to me, he says. Your social media influence won't do it. Your professional accomplishments won't do it. Your ideal marriage won't do it. Your overpacked schedule won't do it. Your fitness routine won't do it. A massive house, stocks and bonds, an overflowing bank account will not either. You will not find rest for your soul by filling your barns with grain, but by filling your heart with Christ. Only, only, The unending love of Christ is sufficient to fill the insatiable appetite of our soul. And he looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, come to me, 
all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But this is not a suggestion. When Jesus says, come to me, it is an imperative command. Do not walk to Jesus. Run to him. Not after you've tried everything else. Now, come to me, he says. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That is the invitation on the table today. I always try my best, the best of my ability and the time I have to wring everything I can out of a passage when I preach. But I actually want to close today, not with something that's in this passage, but something that's totally missing from it. Jesus said that the rich fool was rich in material things, but poor towards God. In other words, he had plenty to be thankful for, but he totally missed who to be thankful to. The absence of daily gratitude to God is fertile soil for greed to grow. And there is no person on the planet, rich or poor, that has more to be thankful to and one to, be thank, one to be thankful, one to be thankful to, and one to be thankful for, than a Christian, a child of God. If you're grateful for anything this week, dwell on this. The value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. Scripture says you were bought for a price. What price did Jesus pay for you? everything. Jesus paid the highest price possible for you. You are Jesus's treasure. Would it be that he is yours? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray.